Well, good morning. If you're here, raise your hand. Let me just see. Okay, I want to see. Good. Um, I have, if you weren't here with us yesterday, I have a little bit of a back issue, so I use the stool. Uh, Jesus sat down and taught, so I'm trying to be like Jesus. Amen? That's what it is. Um, so, uh, yeah, my name is Alvin Reed, and I'm a professor, and a professor is someone who's perfected the art of talking while people sleep, right? That's what professors do, and I, a good fud is earning his Ph.D. with me, and uh, all my students call me Doc. That's kind of my nickname. I'm putting my water down. And uh, so if you'll take your Bible and turn to Acts chapter 11, uh, I want you to think about something in just a moment. I, my wife, Michelle, and I, I talked to her last night. She's planting our garden. We grow a garden, and she feeds deer, and the deer don't eat the garden. She, she's like Dr. Doolittle. She talks to them, and, and they mind her, and they, uh, they behave, and she's named all of them. There's Stomp and Pixie and Bambi, and she would kill me if she knew I was telling you all this. But anyway, she's kind of shy. But uh, she planted all of our garden yesterday. We've gonna have, we're going to have green beans and lima beans and tomatoes and making you hungry, huh? Yeah. So uh, anyway, we've, we've married 32 years, and uh, God has been so good. We have two kids. They both got married four weeks apart, summer before last. So I'm taking up a love offering. <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. We're, we're kind of past that. But anyway, our kids uh, love Jesus, and our daughter and her husband are actually in a church plant uh, like your, cha- your church, and it's in, they, they meet at a high school. Uh, and so uh, they get to experience the setting up of things and tearing down of things and all that kind of stuff. She actually sings with a worship team kind of like this. So it's kind of cool. And our son's a youth pastor at a church uh, in the Raleigh-Durham area, which is where, where Southeastern Seminary is. So anyway, that's a little bit about kind of who the, who's this strange guy who talks really fast with a hick accent. If I had a British accent, you'd think I actually was smart. But I've been to England many times. There's some dumb people in England, okay, so... Not as many as dumb people in Alabama where I'm from, roll tide, uh, but I'll let that go. I want you to think about somebody that has made a great impact in your life. I mean, for good. I mean, somebody, when you look back over the course of your life, you think of it may be a parent, it may be a grandparent, it may be a friend, it may be a minister, it may be a boss or a teacher. Uh, Think of somebody that really, it it may have been a one-time event or it may have been just their influence over time, but I want you to think of one person who's had a significant impact in your life, okay? Can you think of somebody? Now turn to the person next to you and tell them who that person is and why. Go. I like to do this if you were here yesterday. I like to do this. I'm a teacher. All right. I like to do that because then you get through talking, you will be quiet while I'm talking. The rest of the time. I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding about that. Um, so, uh, and hold, hold that because if I don't forget, because I'm kind of ADD and I do forget stuff, uh, squirrel. <laughs> okay, if I, if I don't forget, uh, I will, uh, I'm going to ask you about that a little bit later. I want you to think about the book of Acts. I know you've been going through the, the gospel of Matthew, which is my favorite of all the gospels, uh, and our young prose ministry. I lead a young prose ministry, and this young man right here, wave your hand, Justin, who also drove me. Uh, he drives me in my car and drives me crazy. No, I'm just kidding. He's a, he's a, my buddy, and he's in our ministry there uh, at, at, our, at our church uh, and, and is with me this weekend because I never travel by myself. But uh, the ministry I lead, we, we just went through the Gospel of John recently, uh, and so I know it's good to go through books. But today I want to talk to you about the book of Acts. And today if you've got a pen, pencil, lipstick, or mascara, I want to give you something to write down, okay? Now, now I say that because I speak to teenagers a lot, and I always tell them that. Plus, I'm a professor, and so uh, at the end of this message, we're not going to have a time of response. We're going to have a quiz. 
No, I'm kidding. I know some of you are in final exams and all that, so uh, I'll, I'll lay off that. But the book of Acts is the most amazing book. I've written several books on evangelism and spiritual awakening and uh, on the younger generation and student ministry and things like that. And I love to write and I love to read books on, uh, on that, on those subjects and others. Uh, but the greatest book in terms of understanding how the church, like Remedy Church, a church like yours, is to live out the mission of God is the book of Acts. It is the greatest place to study, and I encourage you to read the whole book. It'd be a good thing sometime just to, uh, especially you students that are finishing up your finals or whatever, just to pick a, a Sunday afternoon sometime, just take some time and get away. And just read the entire book of Acts in one sitting, like you would read a short story from a, a, a collection of short stories or Shakespeare or Mark Twain or something, and just read the book of Acts from Acts 1 all the way through Acts 28 and just get the sweep of it. It's good. Sometimes I'll do like a little personal retreat for a few hours, and I'll just read like the whole book of Hebrews in a sitting, uh, in, a sit, in one sitting. And it's good for me to kind of get the whole story in there. And so I, I would encourage you to do that. We're going to be in Acts 11 toward the end, but let me give you a little, little background because uh, I have I, I, a lot of times when I preach in churches, I have like 30 minutes, which is why I've talked so fast because all these years I, I don't have much time. So anyway, I still talk fast. I've got a little more time today. So uh, I want you to think about the book of Acts. Chapter 1, Jesus says his famous last words. So let me ask you a question. Who said this? Give me liberty or give me death? Right, right time period. Patrick. Patrick Henry, okay, Patrick Henry, all right, oh, that went that Western Civ exam, right, okay, uh, all right, who said, this is a little harder, who said, uh, I only regret that I have but one life to live for my country, Nathan Hale, okay, yeah, oh, yeah, I remember that, how many of you knew those sayings once I gave them to you, how many of you heard those sayings before, raise your hand, okay, okay, I said most of you, you just failed at Jeopardy, okay, that's all I'm saying. What is Nathan Hale? No, we remember those because they're famous last words of patriots before they died for, their, for the young, young, young American nation, okay? And so we remember that. Well, the last words Jesus spoke, he was not surprised. He was going to ascend to his father. He had already done his work of being born of a virgin, living a sinless life, dying a brutal death as our substitute for sin, rising from the dead. And now he's going to ascend to the father. And the last thing Jesus said was, well, you will receive power. I'm gonna, and he talked about that in John. I'm going to leave you another comforter, the Holy Spirit. He said, he said, you'll receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, which happens in Acts 2. And every time a believer repents, a, a, a person repents and fo follows Christ, the Spirit of God moves within us. So Jesus said, you'll receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, and you'll be my worshipers. No, that's not what he said, although that's incredibly important. He said, you'll be my church attenders. That, that, that's not even, no. He said, you'll be my good moral. No, he said, you will be my witnesses. He gave, the last words Jesus gave were the mission of the church. You'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem. That's your that's Rock Hill, Judea, that's kind of South Carolina, Charlotte, uh, Samaria, that's people you don't like. Don't look at me so spiritual. Uh, and, uh, and then the, the uttermost parts of the earth. A couple of years ago, I was in Cape Town, South Africa at the Cape of Good Hope with, with my daughter and a team from our seminary sharing the gospel. So I can say at least at one part of the world, I have shared the gospel, Fud, at the end of the earth uh, in Cape Town uh, where the great whites are and all that. So uh, I haven't made it to some of the other places, but that's part of it. So, so here's what happens. So they get together. They have this 10-day prayer meeting in Acts 2. The Spirit of God comes, and Peter, remember Peter? How many of you know who Peter is, okay? I get you to raise your hands a lot because I'm kind of boring, and it kind of keeps you awake, Okay. 
Peter was the guy who denied Jesus. Open mouth, insert foot, really bold, and then a chicken, right? I will go with you to the death. I don't know him. He's intimidated by a teenage girl by a campfire. Huh? Starts cussing. I don't know. I don't blame anybody. Blake know who that guy is. And he's so ashamed. But then this Peter in chapter 2 of Acts suddenly stands up and proclaims the gospel, and thousands of people come to Christ. What happened to Peter? Well, he wrote a book. No. He went on. He got an infomercial. He got a website. No, he got an old-fashioned dose of the Holy Ghost, the same Holy Spirit who lives in you if you know Christ, the same Spirit of God who used Peter to proclaim the gospel uses regular folks like you. And so the gospel is preached, 3,000 are saved, and they begin to grow. But God reminds us throughout the book of Acts, he doesn't just care about the thousands, he cares about one. So in chapter 3, Peter and John are going to the place of prayer because they're good Jews as well as followers of Christ. And there's a crippled guy. He's over 40 years of age. He's been crippled his whole life. And they stop and they touch him. Reminds us, like, then there are thousands saved. And then the Ethiopian eunuch. Then there are thousands saved. And then there's Cornelius. God reminds us throughout the book of Acts that he cares about individuals. He knows your name and your name and your name. Uh, and, and as a friend says, God, uh, you know, you don't care about the many if you don't care about the one. And, and so God cares about the one. And so this lame man is healed. And Peter gets up and preaches the God. They say, how did this guy get healed? Because they've been watching him for 40 years, okay? I grew up with my mom, my mom and I when I was a little boy. Reminds me of kind of Aiden. Aiden, Aiden my buddy, he'd come see me and, uh, this morning and kind of hang out with me. But I would go with my mom every Saturday morning to the Hills Grocery Store in Center Point, Alabama. And there was a blind man there, and he had sunglasses on, and he had a guitar and a little tin can hanging from it. And he would just sing and sing and sing. It wasn't very good, kind of like me. But anyway, he would sing really loud, and my mom would always give me some change, and I would always drop it in the tin can. He would always stop to make sure somebody wasn't stealing. <laughs> and then he would keep playing. If after two or three years of that, I showed up with my mom on a Saturday morning, he's standing there, his glasses are off, he can obviously see, and he's giving glory to Jesus, I, I want to tell you something, it would, it would draw a crowd. It would draw a crowd. So that's what happened in Acts chapter, Acts chapter 4, or Acts chapter 3, rather. This crowd is gathered, and Peter said, I healed him. I'm starting a TV ministry. If you love the Lord and love him plenty, reach in your pocket and hand me a 20. No, that's, that's not even in the Living Bible. That's not in there. I'm telling you, go read it for yourself. No, Peter said Jesus did. He preached the gospel. You get to chapter 4, and 5,000 men have now come to Christ. This is a movement of God. And when God is moving, everybody is happy. Amen? Uh, not so fast. There was this group called the Sadducees, and they didn't believe in the resurrection, so they were sad, you see? That's not where they got the name, but I learned that in seminary. Uh, no, they, they, they persecuted. So the first persecution happens in chapter 4, and they threaten Peter and John, the leaders of the church, stop preaching in Jesus' name. That's kind of where we are in America. Oh, believe in Jesus, be religious, whatever. Just don't get too serious talking about it. Don't be talking about it in the public school. Don't be talking about it in the office place. Don't be talking about it on the military. But be careful talking about it. That's kind of where America is in a lot of ways today. So what did they do? Well, Peter said, we cannot help but speak of the things we've seen and heard. We, we can't not do it. And so you get to chapter 5, and they're, then the next thing happens, they're beaten for preaching the gospel. They, they told them not to. So they took them, and they beat them, and they released them. And the Bible says they, immediately that daily, one of the most common words in the book of Acts, daily, they continue to preach the gospel. 
You get to chapter 6 and you discover the church, this movement of God is not perfect because there are some Grecian widows, some Hellenistic widows, and they're being neglected. So even these men of God are not perfect. Believe it or not, your pastor is not perfect. Your leaders are not perfect. And so even this movement of God, this great church, they overlooked some people. It wasn't intentional, but it happened. So they began to complain and said, look, we're, we're widows, and we're supposed, you're supposed to take care of widows, and you're not. And so Peter said, here's what we're going to do. We need to get some servants to help us. We've got to give our focus to the ministry of the word and prayer. So they got the first deacons, and they were men of the Holy Spirit and prayer and faith, like Philip and Stephen. And so you have, and, the, and, the, and the word begins to grow and continues to spread. So the church dealt with issues and kept. It's, it's an incredible story. You should read it sometime. It's really great. I'm just giving you the high points, okay? Then you get to, I'm going to get to chapter 11 before I quit, okay? He's never going to, yeah, yeah. Uh, chapter, chapter 7, then, we have the first martyr. One of those seven deacons, Stephen, is stoned to death. And they didn't take little rocks, think big cinder blocks, and they threw them against his body, and they battered him, and they spattered his blood, and they broke his ribs, and they punctured his lungs. And as he is dying, he saw Jesus standing, and, and he responded to his persecutors the way Jesus responded to those who tormented him at the cross. Father, lay not this sin at their charge. Now I want you to look at chapter 8, verse 1, and we're going to get to chapter 11 in just a minute. This is fascinating. I want you to remember this. Chapter 1, I mean chapter 8, verse 1, Saul. There's this guy named Saul, Saul of Tarsus. You may know him. Saul agreed with Stephen being stoned with putting him to death. On that day, a severe persecution broke out. It's kind of like mob rule, kind of like the Rodney King riot. Some of you remember that. Something happens, and it's a tipping point and a catalyst, and all of a sudden, uh, this, this stuff breaks out. And so a severe persecution broke out against the church in Jerusalem, and everyone except the apostles were scattered. That, that's very in, important. It's not incidental. The apostles are still in Jerusalem, but just regular folks like you, just normal people, are just spread out. Not the pastors, not the preachers, regular folks. They're scattered throughout Judea and throughout Samaria. By the way, hadn't Jesus said that they're supposed to take the gospel from Jerusalem to Judea and Samaria? Well, look at there. There they are. But devout men buried Stephen and so on. And so verse 4, so those who were scattered, who are who scattered? Everybody except the apostles went on their way preaching the good news. The, the Greek word there is actually evangelism. They're actually, it's not like they're preaching like I'm preaching to you. They went, everywhere they went, they went telling people about Jesus, like a lot of you did yesterday. Uh, Michael Green in his book Evangelism in the Early Church said, basically they went everywhere gossiping the gospel, everywhere they went. That, that just was the theme of their song. It wasn't their sports team. It wasn't, you know, the persecution they were facing. You know, it was, I, I mean, I see so many Christians in America today on their Instagram and on their Facebook and Twitter whining about this thing about politics. All I see, and all I see Paul doing is saying, let's pray for kings and those in authority that we'll have uh, openness to share the gospel and proclaim the gospel uh, and so on. And so what happens then, this is an amazing thing. How many of you remember, I think it's TV land now that shows it. How many of you guys remember, I know you're young, you're, you're mostly younger than me, even though I'm a young, I'm a very young 55. You were thinking that, right? You're thinking that's the youngest. No, you weren't. Okay. Uh, anyway, uh, how many of you remember the show Bonanza? Anybody remember the show Bonanza? How many of you have ever seen it? Okay. Hoss caught right was my favorite. My wife liked Little Joe, and I never did appreciate that. But I'm just kidding. Uh, but uh, it, 
those shows, Big Valley, Bonanza, huge shows. You watch them back when I, you know, I tell my kids, you think you have it tough. When I was your age, I had to walk across the room to change a TV. <laughs> it was a very difficult time of life. We had phones attached to cords, and you had to actually turn something to actually call somebody. I mean, it was a very difficult life we had uh, to get to those three channels. But we would watch Bonanza. We would sit around as a family. But what you had was you'd have the story beginning, and it would be a single narrative all the way through. And then along came a show in the 70s that every TV in every dorm room at my university at 4.30 and 10.30 at night was watching the show MASH. That was the show of my generation. Kind of like a Boy Meets World for some of you, okay? Uh, I got kids your age. I know what I'm talking about. Uh, but anyway, we would watch MASH. MASH introduced what's called the stack narrative. And so you'd have a scene over here with one group, and then you'd switch over to Hawkeye Pierce over there, and then go back to the guy dressed in drag trying to get, get, get kicked out. Uh, I forgot his name. But anyway, and you have these different scenes, and you, you know it's one narrative, but there's multiple scenes. Hey, Hollywood's not that original. Here's, here's why I said that. In the book of Acts, the way Luke, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, put together the book of Acts, it's a stacked narrative. So from chapter 1, verse 1, all the way to chapter 8, verse 3, uh, there's this narrative, this singular narrative going forth. But then in chapter 8, verse 4, all the way to chapter 11, verse 18, there's like this other narrative that comes in. And Saul eventually, well, first of all, we have this Ethiopian eunuch coming to Christ through the witness of another one of the deacons, Philip, and he goes to Africa and takes the gospel there. In chapter 9, this guy Saul, who's been persecuting the church, getting people Christ- killed in the name of God, he thought, he comes to Christ. He gets converted. And then chapter 10, uh, some more Gentiles come to Christ, Cornelius and others through the ministry of Peter. And you got these different things going on. And then in chapter 11, we're finally to our text. He thought we would ever get there. Look at chapter 11, verse 19. Looks an awful lot like chapter 8, verse 4. Those who had been scattered as a result of the persecution, just like 8, verse 4. So you had this narrative up to Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and now we're going to begin to see the gospel go into the uttermost. They're stepping out of that area into Antioch, the fourth largest city of the Roman Empire, a, a complete, almost completely Gentile city. So now, just like Jesus said in Acts 1-8, in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, they've done that, and now the gospel is heading to the uttermost. And the last word in the Greek text in the book of Acts in chapter 28 is unhindered. The gospel was continually going unhindered to the ends of the earth. Uh, as it, and, and, and we're evidence of that by sitting here today half a, half a continent, half, a, half the world away. So in chapter 11, verse 19, we get to this place. Today, I want to talk to you, if you're taking notes, on the, the subject, the power of influence. The power of influence. And so... I'm going to give you seven principles. If you're taking notes, I'm just going to kind of walk through this text, and we're going to look at this passage together. So let me read a little of it. Chapter 11, verse 19. Those who had been scattered as a result of the persecution that started because of Stephen. Now, these are unnamed people, just lay people, regular folks who are running for their lives, okay? And so they went to Phoenicia. They took boats over to Cyprus, and then they went north to the city of Antioch, fourth largest city in the Roman Empire. And they're speaking the message to no one except Jews. And the reason for that is they're Jews, 
And so it makes sense. If you're a young adult, you're more comfortable talking to a young adult. If you're middle-aged, you're more comfortable talking to people. You know, if you're Anglo, you're more, you know, it, it's just, they're just going to people like them. But the gospel won't let you do that. If the gospel has really changed you and you have this passion for Christ, you got to tell everybody, okay? Uh, I have a friend who's a pastor, and, and, and when he was young, a young preacher, somebody said to him, man, you act like you want everybody to get saved. He said, yeah, that's right. Yeah, that's what I want. Uh, and so that, that's kind of that attitude there. And so they're spreading the news. Verse 20, some of them are men from Cyprus and Cyrene. They came to Antioch, and they began speaking to the Hellenists. That's the Gentiles. I think most of us in this room are Gentiles. Amen? Yes? Aren't you glad the gospel's for Gentiles? So there's some things that happen in this passage and in, in, at Antioch that are really critical to the forward spread of Christianity. First of all, this is the, this is the first time a large number of Gentiles come to Christ. We've had an Ethiopian eunuch. We've had Cornelius and his family. But now, all of a sudden, in a, in a city outside Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, a large city is being converted, being transformed by the gospel. Secondly, we'll see in verse 26, they're first called Christians in Antioch. That's where they refer. The, the term Christian is never used by Jesus. It's not used before then. They didn't even come up. They didn't have like a focus group to think what's the most marketable name most of the names in the history of Christianity that have stuck were given by outsiders, mostly as terms of derision. Protestant, Baptist, Methodist. Those terms are given by outsiders to mock the people that followed the Lord. And so they were given the name Christian by outsiders in Antioch who saw them being like the Christ that they talked about. Um, I, don't, I don't know if we want to have that kind of marketing campaign. Let's take off all labels and let the culture name what they see the church. Anyway, uh, and there's a third thing that happened in this passage. You've got to go to chapter 13. We're not going to get there. But chapter 13, the first few verses, what you see is when the church first sent out formal missionaries from a church to go to another place to spread the gospel, preach the good news, plant churches, it was not the church at Jerusalem. It was the church at Antioch. They sent the first missionaries. And by the way, the first missionaries were the pastors of the church that went out. They sent out their very best, uh, which we still see happening today. So here are seven principles on the power of influence. So today's going to be real, real practical, all right? So what I'm going to do is give you seven things that aren't for preachers or missionaries or like scholars or seminary students or whatever. This is for a, a 10-year-old can do this, okay? A 20-year-old, a, a 90-year-old, uh, you, you, a retired person can do this. Seven principles we're going to walk through this passage and see that you can apply to your life. And so I'm going to ask you... As we reflect in our time of worship a little bit later, as we uh, think about this throughout the day today, that you think and you ask God, which of these do I need to enact in my life? Maybe not all seven. It may freak you out trying to do seven different things. Some of them you're already doing, no doubt. But what are, what are some of these things that, that, see, worship isn't just to come and sit passively. It's to come to meet with God, to worship God, to encourage one another, and to leave changed, and to take what we've learned and apply it to our lives. Because you don't learn by getting information. Information doesn't lead to transformation. Reflecting on information and applying information is what changes us. That's why some people can go to church for 50 years and be a one-year-old Christian 50 times over, and other Christians can grow 50 years more mature than they were the first year because they take it, they receive it, they reflect on it, they apply it. That makes sense. I'm a teacher. Sorry, I just couldn't leave that out. Knowledge minus application equals frustration, right? Okay, so number one, you think he's never going to get to number one. We'll never make it to number seven. Yeah, we will. It'll be about 2 o'clock. Okay. Just kidding. Number one, these, these are real simple. No, no words bigger than mayonnaise, none of that. Number one, see 
S-E-E, see God at work. See God at work. You want to be an influence. You want to make an impact. Now, see, the question this morning is not, are you an influence? If you're breathing and you're not, a, you're not like uh, Tom Hanks in Castaway, only talking to, to Wilson, you are an influence. You are influencing somebody. Okay, you are an influence in this church, at your job, at your school, in your dorm, in your in your subdivision, in your apartment. You are an influence. So that's not a question. The second question that is not to be asked is how broad is my influence? Because God determines that. Okay. Now there's a level to which our influence is affected by our faithfulness, and God God will give more influence to those He finds trustworthy. Stewards need to be found faithful. But the truth of the matter is, if you have great influence over a large number of people, that's because God gives you that influence. So don't be frustrated if somebody has more influence. If I only had that, if I only had that many Twitter followers, I'd do something for God. No, do what you if I only had so much money, no, what you're doing with your money now is what you would do with if you had more. Okay? So so the question is not how am I an influence? The question is not how broad is my influence. Here's the question. What kind of influence am I? What is the influence I am for Christ? And I'm going to give you seven simple principles, starting with this first one, that I promise you will help you as we see from the early church. Number one, uh, see God working. See God at work. So it says, in, uh, so these, these people have come. The gospel has been, been delivered. So verse 21 says, uh, after they proclaimed the gospel to uh, the Greeks as well, the Gentiles, the Lord's hand was with them. By the way, the Lord's hand is more with the people who are actively sharing the gospel. Because that's, Jesus died to give us the gospel so that we could give it to others, not so we could keep it to ourselves. And so uh, the Lord's hand was with them, and a large number who believed turned to the Lord. So the report about them reached the ears of the church in Jerusalem. Must have been on like CNN news or headline news or probably was a, you know, a trending topic on Twitter probably. No, I don't think so. But somehow the news got down to Jerusalem. And they sent this guy named Barnabas to travel as far as Antioch. Again, read the whole book of Acts and read about Barnabas. He's such an encourager. Man, we need more encouragers. His name was actually Joseph. The, the, the apostles renamed him. They gave him a nickname better than Fudd, okay? I'm just saying, better than, or Smap, or Smap, 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 Smap whatever that is. Anyway, I, I, haven't, I don't even know who that is, but I, I heard the, the nickname. Is he here? I, uh, what, what's your nickname? Oh, the math guy. I'm just going to call you math, not Smap. Uh, Smagel, whatever. Okay. Um, so Barnabas, they changed his name to Barnabas, two Aramaic words, which means son of encouragement or son of exhortation, consolation, because he was an encourager every time you see him in the book of Acts. So when Barnabas came, verse 23, here's our text, and he saw the grace of God. Before Barnabas didn't go, oh, my goodness, there's so many Gentiles. Where are they going to say back? Into, where are we going to park all those those chariots how are we going to organize small groups what are we going to get curriculum how are we going to what no there's none of that he saw the grace of god now i'm gonna give you a real profound statement here you ready this is deeply theological how did barnabas see the grace of god you ready he was looking for the grace of god i want to ask you a question as you go through your daily routine are you looking for the grace of god he is here and he is not silent. God is actively at work. God's kind of taken me through a process the last two or three years because uh, I'm stubborn and I'm thick-headed and I'm slow and I'm old and cranky. But he's kind of taking me back to my call. When God called me to ministry at 18 years of age, he called me to take the message of the gospel and to encourage believers and unbelievers in this reality that God is not an absentee God. He's not some deistic 
creator out there. He is actively involved in our lives, and he is at work. He's at work in the public school. You say, well, there's no prayer in schools. Well, eight, one survey said 88% of Christian homes don't pray in their homes. That's the problem. <laughs> Yeah, there's prayer. There's all kinds of prayer going on in public schools. It's just not a formal, official, and sanctioned by the schools. Okay, so so God is at work all around us. I was at a public school, and I was uh, I got saved when I was 11 years old. I was so skinny, I had to run around in the shower to get wet. I mean, I was really skinny, and uh, I could stand sideways, stick out my tongue. I looked like a zipper, and uh, I mean, really skinny and uh, ugly. And my mom and dad named me Alvin. I mean, really. My son is it's not that funny. No, I was kidding. My son's name is Josh. He's got a manly name, Josh. Not Fud. <laughs> I don't know, man. Uh, anyway, uh, John Chambers. Okay. Um, but I got, I, 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 I shared some of this yesterday, but I mean, the, our, our church, church got touched by a thing called the Jesus movement. We're a bunch of hippie freaks. We're becoming Jesus freaks in the late 60s, early 70s. And our church, a little bitty traditional Baptist church, a young church, like yours, but we let the hippies come in. And, uh, and, and, and that transformation made an impact on me, and I've never been the same. Jesus changed my life. But I learned to play the church game by the time I got to middle school, and because I'm a people person, I'm also a people pleaser, and so I wanted to please people, and so I kind of learned the game of be real excited about Jesus at church services and kind of just fit in with the peer crowd in the middle school, okay, in junior high. And I didn't do grossly vulgar things, but I, my language wasn't right, and I, and I would cave into peer pressure a lot. Well, if you really know Jesus, you can't live that way. You, you just can't. You just become so miserable. So at 15, I remember as a sidelines of a spring football game, I played football in high school. I was a linebacker, agile, mobile, hostile. Now I'm fragile, senile, and docile, and in denial. So anyway, I was playing, and, and, and I can I, I remember looking through my face mask. My coach had pulled me off the field because he was upset with me, and I said a cuss word. And it was like, that, not in a church service, not a youth retreat, on the sidelines. It's like the Spirit of God spoke to my heart and said, how long will you halt between two opinions? Like Elijah at Carmel. Are you, are you going to stop? Are you going to be like this the rest of your life? And I said, I'm, I'm so sick. And, you ever get sick and tired of being sick and tired? To God, God, I know you're real. I know you saved me. I don't want to spend my life wondering if you're at work. I want to spend my life seeing you at work learning from your word, and spreading your word. Well, about a week or two later, God tested me to see if I was legit, and he will do that, by the way. And I won't share the whole details, don't have time, but we had this redneck Alabama hick kind of athletic initiation kind of thing for a week, and it was kind of hazing, and they don't do this stuff anymore. It was called the, the P Club because our school was called Pinson Valley High School. But anyway, uh, and, and Thursday night, we had to eat raw eggs and run through an obstacle course through a briar patch, and they made fun of us. It was really stupid. They don't do it anymore. Um, but um, there's a guy named Victor Olinger, pulled a buddy of mine. And there was a guy named Joel who was a Methodist, and he really loved Jesus. And we were kind of encouraging each other. And Victor asked me to call Joel's mom a profanity. And two weeks before, I would have said it because Vic was huge and scared me. Uh, and, and, and I would have caved to peer pressure and said it and then said, God, God please forgive me. But I didn't even think. I just reacted and said, Victor, I don't talk that way. I'm not going to dishonor my Lord, and I'm not going to dishonor Joel's mom or Joel. And I kind of preached at him a little bit. And he stepped back and didn't know whether to spit or wind his watch. And I thought, he's going to kill me. <laughs> I'm never going to see mom again. He took a raw egg, an uncooked egg, and slapped me uh, against my face and just splattered it all over me and cussed me out. 
And then he called Joel and said, Joel, you just pay that, say that about Reed. And Joel wouldn't do it either. That was the first time either one of us had ever taken a stand for Jesus, ever. And they brought us before the whole football team, and they mocked us. And they ridiculed us. And I, I can't remember ever being more humiliated. And I went home that night. And have you ever been angry at God? You know, if you're mad at God, you might as well tell him because he already knows. So I was angry. But, man, God was at work in my life, and I could see. That, that actually showed me something about where God was at work. I saw that God was at work to convict me that I had guys that sat with me in Sunday school who mocked me on Thursday night and then sat with me on Sunday morning and, and acted like they loved Jesus. And so Joel and I got together the next week. We started FCA. Then we started Christian Club. End of story is this. Uh, two years later, our senior in high school, you look at our annual, the largest two clubs on our public school campus were the FCA and the Christian Club. God kind of did a move. We weren't trying to start a movement. We were trying to survive. But we were saying, we believe God wants to do something in this school. And we're going to start looking to see where God is at work. And we're going to stop focusing on the pagans and the persecution and the negative things. And we're going to start finding other. We found some, some African-American brothers and sisters who from a different culture. And this was not a, a good time racially at our school. But we began to pray with them. And we began to find people that were not necessarily like us or at our churches, and we began to pray with them, and we began to see this movement. My senior year, spring of that year, we had a youth retreat sponsored by our public school. Don't know how we pulled that off. We went to a Baptist youth retreat, and some of those guys who mocked me two years before got saved at that retreat. 23 years later, I promise I'm in this story here. I'm in Mobile, Alabama, and a friend of mine from high school that I hadn't seen since it added me on Facebook, and he'd heard me by because you know we tape stuff, so we don't tell, make up stories, right? And he had heard me tell this story on the internet, and he pulled me aside after that service, and he's and he's crying, and I said, "What's the matter, Tim?" And he said, uh, "He said I was one of those guys who sat next to you in Sunday school, but mocked you." And he said, "I'm so sorry." Matter of fact, he was my he was over me. He was the one that had the paddle. I had to make a paddle that he whipped me with every morning. And he had that paddle all those years, and he gave it to me 23 years later. So what I'm saying is you don't know the impact God will have through you in somebody's life that may last 10, 20, 15 years because you and I, we are limited. We don't have God's vision. So why don't we start looking to see what God sees? The reason Barnabas was such an encourager was because he had the vision to see where God was. So you want to be an influence? It starts by seeing where God's at work. Number two, when you do that, you choose joy. You know, happy people seem to be better witnesses. Have you noticed that? I don't mean glib. I don't mean uh, your best life now kind of uh, everything's just hunky-dory because this is a broken world and we live uh, and we're broken people. But people who understand that this earth is not our home, the gospel is greater, that Jesus Christ saves us from this uh, dominion of darkness for the age to come uh, and, and walks with us during this life. It says when he, when he came and he saw the grace of God, he rejoiced. Why did he rejoice? Because it was easy? Because it was going to be no problem? No, because he saw God at work. So those two go together. And so I would encourage you. Uh, George Mueller was a great man of God, great man of prayer, had orphanages, had many orphanages and often couldn't feed the kids. And he would just get on his face and pray and God would miraculously intervene. There's all kinds of stories about that if you read his biography. But George Mueller wrote in his journal, he said, I decided one morning that before I did anything else, before I thought about giving glory to God this day, before I thought about how much I would serve God today, I decided that each day I would get my soul happy in the Lord. 
that before I did anything else, I wanted to get my soul. No matter my circumstances, no matter the task that uh, awaiting me, I just wanted to get my soul happy in the Lord. So I gave it to myself to read the scriptures, especially the New Testament, and to spend time in them every morning until I found myself in a spirit of such joy that I could not help but walk with Christ that day. That's a good place to start. Start every morning seeing where God is at work in his word. Be in the word, steep in the scripture. Get a biblical perspective. We call that preaching the gospel to yourself, where you study the scripture and you remind yourself that God made this incredible world and he made us in his image. And even though we're sinful, wicked people, more sinful than we even know we are, that God made a way through Christ and he came and he died for us and he rose again and he rescues us from the sin and, and the, the, the pain of death and hell. And, and we have a hope beyond this life in heaven for eternity to be with God and remind yourself of that and get your soul happy in the Lord. You'll be a much better witness and a much better influence if you're happy than if you're just crying. You know, some people, you you don't want to ask them how they are because you know they're going to tell you, right? And you want to say, would you like a little cheese with that wine? Choose joy. Number three, be an encourager. Be an encourager. It says in verse uh, verse 24, it says he... I can't read this. Uh, uh, verse 23, rather. He was glad. He encouraged them all to remain true to the Lord with a firm resolve. Heart. He encouraged them to follow the Lord. He encouraged them in Christ. Okay? So remember that person I asked you to think of earlier and you told somebody about? I want you to think about that person. And I want you just to call out, not their name because I don't know them, but call out their relationship to you. Okay? Just call them out loud. Say say, say so. Friend? Teacher? Yes, teacher. I love it. I don't hear that very often. Pastor, youth pastor, mom, sister, landlord. That's a rare one. That's awesome. Dad. What else? Who else? Isn't it true the people you thought of, isn't it true that a large reason they made an impact in your life is because they encouraged you? Can, can I be incredibly practical? And again, study the book of Acts, study the life of Barnabas. You don't have to be able to get up in front of people and talk and teach the word to be an encourager. You don't have to be gifted musically, artistically. You don't have to have a great intellect and answer all questions. You don't have to have a charismatic personality. You don't have to be unusually handsome like me. No, I'm just kidding. Uh, like, like Fudd and Jack uh, or uh, remarkably beautiful. Uh, you you don't have to to be an encourager. You know what you have to do? You have to encourage. Doesn't take a lot of effort to take a note card and write a note and say thank you. And by the way, I'm grateful for emails I get and Facebook and Twitter and all that. But whenever I we don't write cards much anymore. When I get a card from somebody, I keep it. I've got a file and I keep those because uh, somebody took the time to write a note. I want to encourage you to think of somebody. And this is really practical, guys. I want to encourage you to do two practical things this week. Number one, think of somebody who's had a great impact, maybe the person you named, and just take a little time out of your, I know you're busy in your life, and you're so important, you're important beyond anybody else in this room, but take a few minutes, go get a card, and write them a personal note and send to them. And then the second thing is this week for seven days, intentionally go out of your way to encourage someone. And don't do it to get something back. And guys, don't just encourage the pretty girls and girls, the handsome. No, no, no. I mean, just, just really look, go out of your way 
to look. That's not random acts of kindness. This is intentional acts of kindness. Because I promise you, there's no compromise of the gospel. We, we, I led a Muslim lady to Christ when I was teaching at a university in Houston one time, not because I have five steps to reaching Muslims, because every time I saw her on campus, I encouraged her. I encouraged her. I encouraged her. And it developed. she knew I didn't believe what she believed. I, we talked about it. I talked to her about Jesus is much more than a prophet. He, he's much more than that. And, and she, she actually wrote me a note and told me that she had trusted Christ. Um, so encouragement is a huge factor, especially with people with whom you have influence every, every day. I must hurry. I must move quickly. Think about that. Number four, have integrity. Have integrity. It says in verse 24, he was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and faith. Let me tell you what the, the culture needs today. Most people in the culture's disposition toward the church is not naturally positive. We need a few good men and a few good women whose yes is yes, who keep their word. Young adults, let me talk to you. Let me pick on you. I love your generation. I have given my life. Fudd will tell you that. Jack will tell you that. I have given my life to your generation, and I love you. I love the millennial generation, and I love your passion for causes. But let me tell you something about you guys. You guys quit really easily. You guys make a lot of commitments you don't keep. You say you're going to do it, then you don't do it. And you say, well, I've overcommitted. No, no, you're lying, okay? You're lying. So I want to challenge you. I just made some people mad. I have the spiritual gift of afflicting the comfortable, okay, uh, and hurting people's feelings. But I'm just saying, let your yes be yes and your no be no. That is a powerful witness because there aren't many people doing that. I mean, I listen to these talk shows, Mike and Mike, and they're always doing situational ethics. Well, would you do that or would you do that? Well, if you get caught or, no, that's not so bad. And, you know, it's, all, and it's like, how about we just keep our word? Barnabas was known as a good man, and that spilled over to other. You don't have to be a great personal witness. You don't have to be eloquent with words. Just be decent. There is a loss of decency in our culture today, so I want to encourage you to, 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 to try that. Uh, character, D.L. Moody said, is what you are in the dark. Character is what you are in the dark. You know, so... Um, Remember that. Num- number, number, uh, number five, share Christ. Share Christ. A large number of people were added to the Lord, verse 24 says, because they're continually sharing Christ. That says that more than once in there. A lot of people are being saved because a lot of gospel is being shared. Uh, and there is a relationship between uh, the number of times the gospel is shared and the number of people who come to Christ. It's not a one-to-one, but God's level of blessing often rises to our level of expectation and our level of faithfulness. Faithfulness does lead to fruitfulness. Uh, over time. And sometimes it comes sooner, sometimes it takes longer, but it does come uh, with time. So I want to encourage you, uh, think about this. Here's a, I don't have time to unpack this, but that, that video up there, that kind of unpack, that kind of summarizes it. It's on, it's on YouTube. Go look it up. It's called What is a Trader? T-R-A-D-E-R. Watch it every day for a week and, and just remind yourself because there's a lot in there. But basically what they're saying is this. Life, if you're a Christian, life is a mission trip. Take it. Every day, yes, I go on mission trips. I've been all over the world on mission trips. My kids have been. My daughter, by the time she was 18, had been to four continents on mission trips. I believe, get your kids out of the country, see the whole world, see the gospel at work at different places around the world, and in great cities in America. I'm taking 150 people to Baltimore in a month, and we're going to spend a week sharing the gospel in that great city. And and, and so I, I believe in that, but every day you get out of bed, you step out of your dwelling place you are walking into the fourth largest lost nation on the planet you live in a mission field so take it every day number six invest in others invest in others this is hilarious verse 25 when he came to tarsus to search for saul 
And he found him, he brought him to Antioch, and for a whole year they met with the church and taught a large number, and the disciples were first called Christians in Antioch. First called Christians in Antioch. Now I want you to notice this. I want you to see this. This guy, th- th- they went to Joshua to search for Saul. Saul, this is hilarious. The Bible is so funny if you just read it. Remember back in chapter 8, that Saul guy that was so happy about the persecution? That's him. This guy who's running Christians out of the city so that they, and trying to chase him down and kill him, put him in prison, trying to stop this movement, he's now one of the pastors of the very church that spreads the movement to the nations. Only God could think that up, okay? So here's what I want you to understand. Stop telling God how he has to act. We're praying uh, Friday night. We had a four-hour prayer meeting uh, for the nations and for revival, and we were praying about Muslim lands and the 1040 window. And, and, and my prayer is, God, it would be like you to take a terrorist in Iran and save him and turn him into the missionary that reaches much of Islam. That's what he did with Paul. He took the most radical, passionate enemy of the cross, converted him, and turned him into a great apostle. And, and, and almost to kind of put the cross across the T, he put this guy as one of the pastors now of the very church that wouldn't have started if guys like him hadn't created this mob rule and persecuted and scattered everybody. It's, it's an amazing story. Just read the Bible. It's really good. And so he, he got Saul. And for a year, he brought him to Antioch. Now, during this time, some time has elapsed. Saul has kind of spent some time repacking his theology, learning about Christ and growing in his faith. He's still a young believer, though, at this time. And so for a, for a year, they met with the church. So Barnabas is investing in Saul, who will later be known as the Apostle Paul. And soon he becomes the leader, and he's the one investing in Timothy and others. Here's what I, here's what I want you to get. The impact of my I've taught thousands of students. And I've spoken to hundreds of thousands of people, which just means I'm old and I talk a lot. But the greatest impact that I will make in ministry is guys like Fudd, the few that I really invest in. Jesus spoke to thousands. He fed 5,000. He sent out 70, but he changed the world with 12, and he really invested in three. So the way to make an impact for the gospel is not to necessarily have a big crowd. If God gives you that, fine. But the question I'm asking my students who are out in ministry is, who are you you mentoring? Every one of you, if you've been a Christian for a year, can find somebody to invest in. And, and, I, and I know you do small groups, and you do a lot of that. I, I, Justin and I brought with me. One of the ways I do that is I don't drive anywhere if I can help it without taking people with me. I don't do yard work. Well, I got a bad back, so I don't do yard work anyway. I just delegate. But I, Justin and some other guys help me do yard work, and I pay them when they do that. Uh, but but I, I, I take guys with me. In a semester, I'll take 20, 25 guys on trips with me and doing different things and, and, and because the way Jesus' disciple was doing life. And I would encourage you to think about who is somebody. When my son was in middle school, the high school big man on campus at his school who was a believer, and a leader, basketball player, he called us one day, he was at our church, and he said, can I pick up Josh and just take him to breakfast before school one day? He said, yeah. Our son talked about that for months. One breakfast, one 20-minute conversation. How are you doing spiritually, Josh? Are, are you reading the Bible? Are, are, are you growing? That made such a mark on my son. And now he's a youth pastor, and he's investing in young men like that as well. So I would encourage you 
to be looking for somebody else to invest in. And then number seven, it all comes full circle. The seventh is the same almost as the first. And that is number seven, see God move. See God move. When you see God at work, when you choose joy because you're joyful because you know, no matter the difficulty, the the hardship, and we face real hardship, let's not deny it. But in the midst of that, we can rejoice because we know God's at work even in the storm. And we continue to walk in integrity and we continue to share Christ and we encourage others and we're investing in others and mentoring others. What's going to happen is, and you see this throughout history in great revivals, you see this throughout history in movements, you see God move. And it says they were first called Christians in Antioch. And literally the rest of the book of Acts is hinged to this passage I just read, the spread of the gospel to the uttermost. You and I are sitting here today because of what happened in that city 2,000 years ago. I close with this. Uh, a few years ago, and you, you, may, you may be familiar with this story, but a few years ago, there's a guy named Jamie. He's a young adult like you. He's a believer. He's from Florida. And he's out in uh, L.A., and he's, uh, he's watching the recording of an MTV music video. I don't know the band. I don't know. But, but the, the director of the video, interestingly, was Joaquin Phoenix. Y'all know the guy that played the emperor in Gladiator? And played Johnny Cash and Walk the Line, that, that guy. But today he's not acting, he's directing. And he, it's L.A., he's wearing a short sleeve shirt. And, and, and this young man named Jamie from Florida said, it's amazing, he got a Sharpie, and every time he had an idea, he would just write it on his arm. I don't know if he took a bath in alcohol. I don't know, but he said, it's just strange. He said, man, and, and he's flying back to, uh, to uh, Orlando. He thought, man, you know, I, I wish I could just write what I believe and just put it out there. I wish I were that bold. A couple of weeks later, he was having a very difficult time and uh, as he was having that difficult time, he was really struggling with his family. He took a Sharpie, took a marker, and he wrote the word love on his arm. Now, you know, some of you know the story I'm talking about. About that time, he met a 19-year-old girl named Renee. And I'm going to let you listen to Jamie briefly tell her story. When I meet her, cocaine is in her system. She hasn't slept in 36 hours, and she won't for another 24. Her life is a blur of cocaine, pot, pills, and alcohol. She's agreed to meet with us and let us listen to us and let us pray. We ask her to come with us to leave this broken night. She says, no, I'm going to rehab. You're, you're a little too spiritual for me. It's too great a change. I, I'm okay. We pray and we say goodbye. It's hard to leave without her. She's known great pain, haunted dreams as a child, the near constant presence of evil ever since. She has felt the touch of awful naked men, battled depression and addiction, and attempted suicide. Her arms remember razor blades, 50 scars, speaking of self-inflicted wounds. So that night after they leave her, she takes some more alcohol, she takes a razor blade, and she carves the F word up her arm. And when the nurse the next day sees her bloodied arm, they reject her and they leave her on the street. They say, you're too great a risk. We won't take you. And so Jamie finds out about it and they find another rehab place, but it's going to be a few days. And so he says, for the next five days, she's ours to love, just a bunch of young adults. We become her hospital, and the possibility of healing fills our living room with life. It's unspoken, and there are only a few of us, but we will be her church, the body of Christ coming together to meet her needs, to write love on her arms. And he talks about the next five days. They take her to concerts. They, just, they don't know what they're They're not professionals. And then Sunday is church, and many gather after the service to pray for her because the next morning she's going to rehab. And they're giving her gifts, and they come to his house afterwards, and 
there are people giving her notes and hugging her neck. And she says, I've got a gift for you, Jamie. And she takes him into the garage. And he wonders what, what she, she doesn't have much. What is it? He says, she hands me her last razor blade. She says, this is the one she used to cut her arm five nights ago and line cocaine. She said she's had it ever since and says, tonight will be the hardest night of my life, and I really don't need to be around a razor blade. I hold it carefully, he says. I thank her, and I instantly know that this gift will stay with me. It hits me to wonder if this feeling is what Christ knows when we surrender our broken hearts and trade death for life. He says, I've watched life come back to her, and it's been a privilege. And he talks about rescue, and he talks about redemption. And he says, we often ask God to show up, and we pray prayers of rescue. Maybe God would ask us to be that rescue, to be his body, to move for things that matter. Things may not always work out like we think or as we hope, but it's worth the risk. And then he says this, and I'll close. You want to make an impact. You want to be an influence. Here's one example from one young man. Take a broken girl and treat her like a famous princess. Give her the best seats in the house. Tell her something true when all she's known are lies. Tell her God loves her. Tell her about forgiveness, the possibility of freedom. Tell her she was made to dance in white dresses. Because these things are true. Amen? Next month, a young lady's going to be married to one of our fine young men. She's in our college. And she lived with us for three months, a couple of three years ago. Uh, her dad assaulted her, broke her arm, and she had nowhere to go. And I'm not saying this to be noble. We've only done this once ever. It was about three or four months. And, and it, in many ways, it was very, very hard. It was very hard. But now to see, she's marrying a youth pastor, and I took him to lunch the other day. Guys, listen to me. Stop trying to change the whole world. Let God change you. And then you find one person because this city is filled with Renee's. This campus is filled with Renee's. And they need a Jamie to live out the gospel and influence them for Christ. Father, right now, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the example of Barnabas and the story of the church at Antioch. I, I never read that story without being moved uh, and encouraged and hopeful that you still do that. And we, so we read the stories of history and we look at our own lives and we see how you've moved in our lives as well. So, Lord, I pray right now as we go into a time of corporate worship and response that, Lord, there's very likely someone's here who's not sure about their own relationship with Christ. I pray that they would know that you have done all the work for salvation. We don't earn salvation. We simply surrender. We simply trust you, and you change us. I pray for others of us who have perhaps been a little lackadaisical, just kind of going through the motions, and, and you've spoken to our heart about, individuals in our lives or, or just about a trajectory of our life that is more toward influencing others in the gospel. I pray that we would hear you and we would respond appropriately in Jesus name. Amen. Let's